In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Lonnie Diane Rich, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. Today we're looking at Criminal Intent Season 1, Episode 7, Poison. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. It's nice to uh, speak with you this evening. That, yeah, like it's a big deal, right? <laughs> and rounding out the panel is our special guest from the Story Wonk Podcast Network, Lonnie Diane Rich. Hi, Lonnie. Hey, how are you guys doing? We're great. You have a network. That's really impressive. Yes, it sounds really impressive until you realize that we run it, of course, out of a, a small room in our home. But yes. yeah, so do we, though. So it's <laughs> we're in the club now. Just so people know that you are a writer and you podcast about writing with your husband. And just let me say, lame. <laughs> I know married couples podcasting. I mean, my God, who wants to listen to married couples fight about stories and television, right? I, I guess just people who uh, want to save on payroll. I guess so. <laughs> no, it does help a lot to be married when you're the only two employees in your business. <laughs> <laughs> so now your focus on your different podcasts is on, and, and, and the different things that you do, your workshops and your teaching, it's all on story, whether in books or on the screen. Now, in your mind, is story merely deconstructing the narrative or is there is it a distinction without a difference? Um, I mean, story is really about, you know, the meaning that is applied to a series of events when you break it right down. So what we do is we look at all of these uh, different ways of telling stories, be it movies, be it books, be it TV shows, and we kind of figure out how the narrative works. It's sort of like, you know, in uh, in seventh grade, you took apart the frog and looked at all the pieces in order to see how it works, yeah. you know. That's what we do. We dissect them. We kind of take them apart. We sort of see how the, the moving pieces work and how they, they work together. And uh, and so for us, it becomes, it's just been an obsession for both me and my husband, Alistair, who, who runs StoryWonk with me. Um, and we just have so much fun kind of digging in and seeing how, how all of that storytelling works. Well, what's neat is, unlike your high school English teacher, you're not just breaking down Rime of the Ancient Mariner. You're using all <laughs> of those same kind of tools. And you're looking at, like, your podcast are like, Rebecca and I, these are all of our favorite shows. Veronica Mars, yep. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, ha Harry Potter, <laughs> Star Trek, Star Wars. So you got Wait, to wait, Star Trek or Star Wars? Which one? Which one are they Oh, they like, they more? like them both. I'm, I'm a Star Wars guy. Yes, and you know that I'm a Trekkie. So. Yes, and I can't wait to hear Alistair's take on Rogue One. Oh, yeah, no, he is absolutely prepping up for that. He's very excited. 
So give us some advice on how to do a good fan podcast. Well, the thing that's nice about a fan podcast is that you can just look at the positive stuff. <laughs> like <laughs> we, we critique everything, and that sometimes means that we look at the things that didn't work as well as the ones that did work. But when you're doing a fan podcast, what you can do is just sink deep into the appreciation, you know, <laughs> into just loving what is good. And you don't necessarily have to talk about what doesn't work. Although I like the fact that you guys do. I'm a big fan of the are their stories. I've been listening to it from the beginning. I love the way you guys break it down. And you don't mind pointing out some of the things that maybe didn't work quite as well. So that's that's good. I like that. But yeah, being able to do a, a fan cast is really just about understanding how to like deeply appreciate and love the medium and not worry about necessarily being a nerd about it. Because I think that being a nerd about it is like the best part. Yeah, so you're basically leaving your, your judginess at home, which is something that I have a really hard time doing, even with something that I love. Right. I have a hard time with that, too. And it makes it a little <laughs> difficult because there are times where, you know, I really like I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It honestly, is one of the things that taught me so much of what I know about storytelling. I learned like, you know, at Joss Whedon's knee figuratively, not literally because that'd be weird. <laughs> but but I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer so much. So sometimes I want to go into these shows and just like love up on it and then we watch it and I have to apply like this critical thought to it like does the narrative work is this properly motivated do these characters seem consistent you know and so after like some of the episodes that I have loved 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 in the past I'll go into and I'll be like uh you know that's not working and that's not working and that's really not good <laughs> so it's got to kill you to say like oh season three of Veronica Mars is not the best yeah when you we, get to it right oh we had we had a tough time uh, on the episode that we recorded today <laughs> Uh, which was about an episode called President Evil, which which really had some some serious issues in Veronica Mars. And I mean, I love it. Is that it. the casino? Uh, that's uh, one where, yeah, mystery. where Veronica gets her uh, necklace taken in the casino robbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so it's it's not great. And it's really, really hard to kind of look at that stuff and be like, eh. but also part of it is like one of the ethos that we have at Story Wonk is love what you love that just because it's broken in a couple of different ways doesn't mean that you can't love and completely appreciate it at the same time. It's OK to love something that may not be like the most flawless piece of creative work that has ever hit the scene. And so we kind of have learned to differentiate between it's not good and that means I can't love it you know so so that's one of the nice things and I like that we're able to do that for our listeners who sometimes feel bad like you know that whole idea of the guilty pleasure that it's something that you you love dearly but it's not good and so you you feel like shame for loving it I don't think you should ever (laughs) feel shame for loving anything because loving things is one of the the most wonderful human experiences and when you're excited about something and you love it to pieces there's a reason there's something within that story that speaks to you and if it does then that's great then this story did what it needed to do for you you know so when we look at it critically sometimes that's really hard because we love it so much but we've kind of come to the understanding that part of loving something is being able to love it flaws and all you know i I think about that a lot we watch episodes of law and order because i love it so much but some of them are just not good and like you know even if you know i'm a big criminal intent fan the episode we're going to talk about today would i say it's the best episode of criminal intent (laughs) Nope. But you know what? I also love black and white cookies like a lot. Yeah. And if a food critic who'd never had a black and white cookie before ever were to Mm -hmm. have one, it would probably be like, 
It's not cookie. It's not cake. <laughs> it doesn't taste very good. Why do people love this? But it's the body of work that, yes. you know, really resonates. Everything right? from that bakery. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Lonnie, I want to get your professional take on this. Criminal Intent is unique in the Law & Order franchise because it's an open mystery, mm-hmm. not a closed mystery. So how does one have to write episodes in the open mystery format that keeps an audience engaged week after week? Well, I'm not sure that it's always necessarily the question of who did it, because when you're writing a story, you want to think about what the process is that you're going to take your characters through, you know, and here we have the challenge of, you know, how are our detectives going to figure this out? How are they going to catch this person? You know, so it's very similar to like Columbo, you know, Columbo Mm -hmm. was like that, too, or would show you in the beginning who did it, you know, you would have a sense of that. And then you would have to watch how they how they unpicked the mystery from the other side. So it's not that different from how, like how you tell any mystery story because instead of it who did it? It's the question is how are these these cops going to catch this person? How is justice going to be served, which I think is really at the heart of every Law and Order episode, is that this is, and it's something like, I feel a little bad about this, because it sounds really judgmental, but I don't mean it in a judgmental way, like justice porn, you know, that like you Mm -hmm. go into it, and every 45 minutes on the dot, justice has been delivered like a pizza, you know, and you know (laughs) that the bad guy is going to go to jail, and there's something about that that could be really comforting. You told me that you had writing students that had some observations about that about why they like Law & Order. Oh, yeah. I ask every semester in my screenwriting class, I ask my students because they're all really young, you know, so they, they have never known a world without law and order. <laughs> like that has never existed for them, you know. So I ask them about it. And like they've always lived in a world where it's on 24 hours a day and not just law and order, but like generally procedurals have been really huge for the last like 20 to 30 years, you know. And what is it about it that, that appeals to you? And so these young kids who are going into storytelling, who are going going into communications, you know, I sit them down. I'm like, do who watches Law and Order? And they'll be like, and half the room, the arms go up, you know, and I ask them what it is about it that they really like about it. And they just say that it's comforting. And when you think about, especially if you're talking about like SVU, you know, like, I don't know if anybody would really qualify the things that happen on Law and Order as a comforting <laughs> thing. But I think it's that you have this horrible stuff that happens, right? And these kids are all like early 20s, you know, they're just beginning to realize how truly vile the world can be. And it's a very distressing time period, I think, in your life. And when you look at the real world, and you see these things that happen, and these murders that go unsolved, and, um, you know, and the terrible things that people do to each other, the idea that you can engage with a story that will give you this this sense of peace, knowing that the, you know, like like Oscar Wilde says, the good ended happily and the bad unhappily. You know, that's the way it should be. So I think that there's a real, a real like cultural, societal and, and psychological value to these procedurals that allow justice to be served. Now, of all the Law & Order franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law & Order detective team. I'm going to confess. 
I don't watch a lot of Law and Order. That's okay. <laughs> I know. That's it's okay. Shameful. It's positive. You're bringing other shameful. skills to the table exactly. here. And I'm among friends, right? I can, I can absolutely edit yeah. this. You know? We're going to edit this out. Okay. <laughs> We're not going to edit this out. That's yet. okay. That's okay. No, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually open with this. I've, I've come out. I've been out for a while as somebody who hasn't watched a lot of Law and Order. But from what I have seen, I have to say that SVU, Benson, and Stabler, Mm-hmm. I think are my favorite detective team. And I have to say, it comes down to the romantic in me. I mean, I, I love romances. I'm a romantic comedy nerd. Um, I write romantic comedies. For me, it's always about that that connection. And I know that Benson and Stabler never like actually got together, but there's always that hint of, of deep longing between them. And I just like them. I think they have great chemistry. They're really fun to watch. I think you just Wikipedia'd that. <laughs> <laughs> Do- how about any other detectives that you could name? Oh, 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 yes. I think I can name some. Although I think it would be funny if you guys threw out names at me and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know who they are and they wouldn't be real. You know? Well, like Briscoe? Um, yeah, no, I know Briscoe. I know Jerry Orbach. I yeah. know him. I remember him from Dirty Dancing. Yeah, and I was right. very excited to see the Dirty Dancing dad in Law and & Order. Um, and I love Jesse L. Martin. And I know mm-hmm. that that sounds like cheating. It really Me does. Too. Because they were in this episode, <laughs> right? You know, but I actually did know them. I knew Jesse L. Martin from, uh, Allie from McBeal, a long probably. time. Allie McBeal, yeah. he, did some, he did a great episode of The X-Files. And he's also on My the favorite Flash episode now. of The X-Files. The Unnatural. Yes, uh, yeah. I hate baseball, but uh-huh. I love that episode of The X-Files. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's a great episode. And Jesse, uh, uh, yeah, I love him. I love him all the time, every time I How see him. How about Detective Logan? Detective Logan. Oh, that's Chris Noth. See? Yeah. Oh, I'm passing the test. No, I know yeah. him because he's big on Sex and the City. How about <laughs> Detective Sipowitz? Oh, no, no. You're trying to trip me up. That was uh, NYPD Blue. <laughs> that was Dennis Franz, uh. NYPD Blue. See, no, here's the thing. I may not know a whole lot, but I am like a big television nerd. Uh-huh. So I do kind of know some basics. What about Captain Rogers? <laughs> Captain Rogers, you got me. <laughs> Captain Steve Rogers? Oh, no, no, Captain America. I love him. Yeah, no, that's, that's, we could do this all day. That's my Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, man. I, I know my Steve Rogers, yes. I almost tripped you up. You almost got me. How about this? Do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Okay, I do. <laughs> I'm calling bullshit. From... You don't really. Again, you just Wikipedia this because you, no. you knew you were going to be asked. She's listened no. to several other episodes okay. of These Are Their Stories a lot on her podcast. She came prepared. <laughs> no, I did. I did prepare myself because I really – no, I do. I know Sam Waterston. Right? I love Sam mm-hmm. Waterston. He played Charlie on the newsroom, the Aaron yep. Sorkin show, and I loved him on that. And I actually did during the only time in my life when I actually watched Law & Order was like in the, in the mid-90s, and there was McCoy and Kincaid. Mm-hmm. And again – there was kind of that like romantic undertone. There oh, it was wasn't an undertone. Sense, you know? <laughs> well, did they, I, I, we didn't see them get together, but there was like a, there was like a sense that they had slept together, yes, right? Yes. Not a sense. They actually had slept together. They oh, actually like did. stop being so wise because you didn't know that. Till oh, I, I didn't. It but out. now I do, and yeah. now okay. I know that it's true. They had slept together, and okay. once you know it, there's references to it in almost every episode in which they appear together. They are in fact sleeping together. Oh. That is, that's a thing. See, I thought that was all like subtext. I didn't think that that was actual text in the thing. No, so that's it really awesome. is sub- it's subtext. Okay. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's well, when I watched it, I either didn't pick up on it or it hadn't happened yet. But I liked them then. I thought they had a lot of chemistry. It's funny that you should mention Charlie from the newsroom as the Sam Waterston mm-hmm. um, character because mm-hmm. Charlie from the newsroom is basically peak Jack McCoy all the time. Oh. Jack McCoy at his most like outraged Jack McCoyist, <laughs> at his most like that. I'm about to have a strokiest. Yes. 
That's Charlie from the newsroom. <laughs> I love him. Dial 211. Give me Sam Waterston dial 211 any day, and I will love it. Let's take a look at the first half of this episode. The episode opens with recently widowed Trudy visiting her mom, Loretta, in the hospital just before her roommate dies, the third in a series of suspicious deaths at the hospital. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> All three patients were on the surgery ward. None had been admitted for life-threatening conditions. You're saying they were misdiagnosed. That's not what I said. Okay, so they uh, developed uh, life-threatening conditions after they were admitted. Either way, the hospital's on the hook. Here are the names of the patients we got off the 911 call. We want the addresses of their families. Then you can fax us the names of everybody here who had anything to do with their treatment. We'll expect it by this afternoon. Later in the funeral parlor, Detective Gorin, who has no formal medical training we know of, starts groping the dead woman's body in front of her husband. He smells almonds on her breath, the telltale trace of almond joy, <laughs> and also of cyanide. Gorin is sure this is a typical angel of death case, so they're looking for a disgruntled, underappreciated nurse, which, even in New York City, takes about all three minutes to find. <laughs> when they question Nurse Colleen, she confesses to giving patients a dangerous heart medication so she can save them. And so ends another seven-minute episode of Law & Order Criminal Intent. <laughs> Now, despite the arrest, Gorin is not convinced that Colleen fits his profile. He and Eames glean the cyanide was actually coming from tampered bottles of headache medicine. Their search takes them to the 27th precinct, where a pair of two-bit detectives tell them about an unsolved poisoning. Meanwhile, as New York City goes into a panic, we see Trudy sneak a bottle of painkillers onto the shelf at a random drugstore. Now, later in the series, virtually every episode opens with us explicitly knowing what happened. And here in season one, Rebecca, they're holding back with a red herring. Yes, but this is, by the way, an interminable cold open. It seemed to go on and on and on and on. And that's one of the things that differentiates, I think, criminal intent from other parts of the franchise. But yeah, we are definitely given the impression that it's the nurse, Colleen or Colleen, depending on what scene you're in and how they're pronouncing her name <laughs> in that particular scene. Uh, we're definitely given the strong impression that she's the one who committed the crime. Except, by the way, for all of Trudy's incredibly furtive looks, which basically never stop for the entire episode of this show. There's a lot of eye acting in this. <laughs> so much face acting. I actually had Kevin pause a few times while watching this episode together. I'm like, face acting, you have to like, we have to go back so you can check out the face acting. So I think maybe the crew didn't have a lot of space. So it was like, okay, everything's going to be close up today, guys. I think it's not HG just yet because we don't need to see the pores on your nose. Right, but let's talk about what's in that cold open. So in the cold open, like the patient crashes. Mm -hmm. uh, Trudy shows up to visit her mom. She's super bitch to her mom. There's time for all of that exposition. Then Mrs. Taylor dies later, not from the crashing. Then there's a super sketchy all-white guy hospital board meeting with like mm -hmm. so many doctors. It looked like they like stepped off the set of like, I don't know, some noir film. Mm -hmm. um, then the doctor calls the cops, reports uh, three murders. It just... It's, it's a whole lot to happen before the credits even roll. So this isn't typical then for an episode of Criminal Intent? <laughs> no, it kind of is. Okay. <laughs> it kind of is, but it is kind of what distinguishes The pacing is a little... The pacing is yeah. a little bit weird. A whole lot is going on. A lot of, lots going on with time that I don't quite understand, even in the cold open. Oh, well, yeah. No, we're skipping around all over the place in this episode, you know, because I'm wondering, like, how long does it take for the, as we get it to later, this big lawsuit that goes on? I'm like, that's the fastest lawsuit I've ever or seen. 
How long does it take to take children's clothes off of hangers? (laughs) (laughs) A very long time if you're crazy. (laughs) Well, we can see that Trudy is not broken up about her husband's death. She's even uh, poking at the dirt at the grave with a stick just to make sure it's not too frozen. (laughs) Rebecca, by the way, that's what I would like you to do for me. Oh, I plan on it. Just to make sure the headstone is going to be, you know, properly cited or whatever reason she gives. But I don't think there was a single scene in the show, especially between she and her mother, where she was just not like a crazy... to her mother? So, I actually felt pretty good about the way I treat my mother after watching this episode. (laughs) I don't know about you guys. How's your chest feel? It's better. Doctor says my lung is healing fine. I'm going to need some help at home when they let me out of here. We'll get one of those home nurses. Medicare won't pay for that. How do you know that? You're always so negative about everything. Can't you come stay with me for a while? Ma, I fed your cat and watered your plants for two weeks already. I loved the mom in this, though. I thought she she was fantastic. I said the same thing. She was an amazing actress, right? No, I loved her. I loved the way that they interacted with each other. I thought that the dialogue, the way it was written between the mother and the daughter, like, that was dead on. Like, you know. Ma. 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 I fed your cat, Ma. Yeah. (laughs) I fed your cats and watered your plants, Ma. What else do you want? Now take my cyanide. Don't say anything. Shut your mouth. (laughs) Ma, snitches get stitches. So are you going to give us a chance to talk about the weirdest medical exam of all time? At the funeral parlor? <laughs> all right, so Lonnie, here's my question for you. Yes. Let's just say your husband dies. I know I'm not like wishing that on you. I mean, I, I use Kevin as this example all the yeah. time. Like, Kevin, okay. let's just pretend that you died. Do you want to be there when the creepy cop is looking in his mouth and like sniffing around for evidence? No, no, I don't want to. You know what? I would prefer that the creepy cop not like, you know, sniff and then press down on him with like a whoopee cushion, you know, to release the wonderful almond scent that is wafting up. Yeah, Goran's weird, right? I mean, he's supposed to be like weird, like monk-like. Is that how he's supposed to be? Yeah, weird, trained in profiling, not like other cops, knows things that no one else knows. The other thing that struck me, and I don't know if you picked up on this too, it felt like a writing shortcut. Like there were supposed to be two scenes, one in which he talked to the husband Mm -hmm. and one in which he looked at the body. (laughs) (laughs) Budget cuts. Yeah, you put them all in one. (laughs) We spent all this time at the hospital at the crash cart. We have to find some place to make up the time. We'll just put these two scenes together, I guess. You know, why not? Because you might as well. You know, might as well have the husband right there while you're poking the dead body of his yeah. wife. And kind of get, feeling up the old dead lady. It was kind yeah. of it was kind of weird. It was mildly inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was dead, she couldn't complain, so <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> now in this episode we have a crossover. 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 Briscoe and Green from Law and Order Prime uh, took it an afternoon out of their shooting schedule to help. So, uh, you're going to tell us where to look, or do we have to play 20 questions? Medicine cabinet. You mean we got a nut job out there? You didn't hear from us, but yeah. Someone spiking tablets of mesedron. Oh, really? Okay, two questions. How long have you known about this, and just when were you planning to share it with the rest of the world? That's up to the commissioner's office. Those idiots. 
Uh, Rebecca, too gimmicky, or do you like seeing these crossovers? Oh, I love seeing the crossovers. Love it, love it, love it. Even though I do feel like the editing is very different in Criminal Intent, so Briscoe and Green looked a little weird to me. Like there was some weird face acting, as we've discussed. But also there was this weird thing, and I know that our listeners, we don't expect them to actually watch the episode that we're discussing. That is the joy of the show. But if they do happen to catch this one, I do want them to just look over to the left side of their screen during the Briscoe and Green shots and look at the way Green's gigantic hands are wrapped around the tiny coffee cup that he's holding. There's like a little he bit of like a weird... Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> he, looks, what he, yeah. he looks like reverse Tyrion Lannister. Yes. <laughs> There's like a little bit of a weird thing where it just feels like, all right, we got to go do this thing now. I need I need something to hold while we're shooting this scene. <laughs> Like what are what's what's Briscoe and Green's what's their motivation to go outside? Oh, I know. What should I be doing with my hands? <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, have a PA bring me a cup. Okay. All right, but I'm make ready sure for it's the, the tiny little Dixie cup though that we need, <laughs> so that your hands can look so big. What you couldn't get me a regular sized cup? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with my other hand? Oh, I'll just no, I'll, no, I'll just go. I'll do it. I'll handle it. Lonnie, I know that you watch a lot of TV. Is this the kind of thing that you notice too, or is this? Am I alone? In, oh in no, this kind no, of... no! I absolutely do. And this is the kind of thing that, that I think once you know this is what you do for a living. Like you know, Alistair and I watch television critically for a living. So when we are off the clock, when we are watching something that we're not even doing for a podcast, this is what we do. And our kids hate us. They're like, <laughs> just shut up and enjoy the show. And Can you shut just up. leave Barney you know, alone, Mom? Exactly. No, I was just going to pull out My Little Pony because, yeah, we do that with My Little Pony. We really do. We're like, oh, yeah, like the glitter would come from there, please. You know, and <laughs> we are horrible and everybody hates us in our family. <laughs> no one's saying, what are you doing Friday? Do you want to go to? Uh, no. Never mind. Nobody wants Bowling? to go to movies with us. No. Nobody wants to. Yeah. No. And I'm sure the people sitting behind you just love that, too, right? <laughs> oh, they do. They tap us on the shoulder and say, we are so glad you chose this showing, you know, Thank to you. show up for. <laughs> Did you have to bring a flashlight and a notepad, though? Exactly. <laughs> I guess the reason we, we kind of wink, wink, bring in the established actors from the big series, other than to, like, you know, the ratings gimmick, is so that Gorin and, and Eames can get some help with, you know, spreading a leak to the press. Right. Because they're afraid. They already know that... The brass upstairs, the, the the faceless brass, want to shut down this phone bank. So when Captain Deacons gets angry about watching the TV coverage that, and realizes there was a press leak, how about the Emmy Award-winning performances by Vincent D'Onofrio and Catherine Irby? <laughs> like yeah, the, whistling uh... and rubbing their neck. Like, oh. <laughs> if you are the head of the major crime squad and you couldn't pick up that those two guys, those two detectives were just whistling past the graveyard. I, I, you shouldn't be a cop. Well, the thing that really stuck out to me in that scene, and uh, because I can't help but look around, you know, this is show. These shows are so familiar to me, and I'm sorry if this is a digression because I know you asked me about, you asked us about whether or not their reactions were appropriate, whether he noticed them, but. Did you see what was written on the whiteboard? Oh, yes, I, I did. Yes, scene? I did. Um, little phrases like stakeout at the ball field. Uh, he had a schedule for a pep talk. I saw a pep talk, 3.30. <laughs> well, that's because some intern was told, uh, some PA on the day was like, okay, we got this whiteboard, but it's not full. You got to fill it up with stuff. And she's like, what do I do? And they're like, I don't know, just whatever would be in a cop. Whatever cop might write on a whiteboard, just that's put right. it there. 
Uh, pep talk? It does feel... I mean, feel... yes, everyone's really upset. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're upset because they haven't yet learned how to write for the cops in this series. I have to say, we are in, you know, a few seasons into Law & Order with Briscoe and Green at this point, right? When mm-hmm. this series starts. The series with Briscoe and Green in it had a lot of face acting and was super awkward. They were still in the first season of Criminal Intent. The acting and the writing for the actors is awkward. I mean, that's just kind of how the whole thing feels to me. Lonnie, am I alone? Did you also feel that way? Oh, no, I totally did. And I loved every minute of it. The the woman playing Trudy, her eyes were just (laughs) darting all over the place. I think they were spelling out, I'm so super guilty of this in Morse code. It was the craziest thing. And so she's just looking all over the place everywhere. And her mom, who was also really great, was doing a lot of that kind of stuff too. And I feel like, you know, I feel like there's somebody behind the scenes going, I don't know, do you think they're going to know she's guilty you know so they just like <laughs> dial it up gave her a bunch of coffee and they're just like go for it baby and that I think was that she's it been yeah. trying to make her look like she's thinking yeah she's, you know like yeah. she's robert langdon in in the <laughs> vinci code like hmm but you know she's an actress that i've seen in other things i know i have she's definitely like a hey it's that guy kind of actress you know that she can act right yeah. mm-hmm. but, but when she's sneaking down the drugstore aisle and then like pulls the bottle out of the purse <laughs> and then literally looks over her left shoulder and then looks over her <laughs> right shoulder She's in the aisle of a goddamn drugstore. There's nowhere to look. There's nowhere to look. (laughs) Is the pharmacist coming? (laughs) If they weren't watching me, they will now because I've just given the international code for, hey, I'm up to something shady, which is the -the over-the-shoulder, both-ways look before I do something. Which is also how Gornims were acting in their conversation with their captain. Mm -hmm. Bring it back. The only thing Trudy didn't do was rub her hands together and start laughing. (laughs) Twirl her mustache. Her little mustache. She did have those... on so she could twirl it. Yeah, she did. She did have those Nellie Olson curls that she would like bounce in every scene. Like she literally would flounce her curls like Nellie Olson. That's which how I we know we're supposed to hate her. That's right. Because she's a little Nellie Olson. All right, let's take a look at the second half of this episode. In part two, we see Gorn give a lovely presentation on an overhead projector. Apparently, that year's technology grant went to the guys at SVU. <laughs> For their PowerPoint? Yeah. Eames and Gorn interviewed Trudy after she had her husband exhumed. Seems he also died of cyanide poisoning, but no one caught it the first time. We also see Trudy calling to see how she can go about suing the drug company, hoping to use the cash to achieve the American dream owning a baby clothes franchise. <laughs> how did you know your husband took the Nisedral? Did you see him? No, but I remember he had a bad headache when he got home from work. I noticed that there's no pictures of you and your husband. We didn't like taking pictures. Lenny always thought he looked too fat. Wedding pictures? I, I like looking at wedding pictures. I threw them all out. It was too depressing. I don't like to dwell. Right, you gotta move on with your life. Yes. Because there is no Patriot Act, Gorin has to get his information about cyanide sales from environmental activists. <laughs> the detectives learned that cyanide recently had been shipped from a private lab to the apartment of Trudy's mother, Loretta. Unable to get Trudy to confess, Gorin devises an overly elaborate plan to indict Loretta to void Trudy's contract with the Baby Clothes franchise due to a morality clause. The detectives convince her the only way to clear her mother and win back the store is if the real poisoner comes forward. Trudy takes the bait and writes the letter to the newspaper to throw suspicion elsewhere, but the major case squad is watching and Trudy is literally dragged off to jail. 
Now, I have to say, I feel really bad for Gore, and he obviously spent a lot of time at Kinko's getting full-color transparencies for that overhead projector. (laughs) (laughs) I did love that he was literally in a dark room, the whole, like, least effort hot zone, and, like, everybody, like, really, really looking at it. It was sort of like those scenes in The Wire with, like, juking up the stats, Uh except it wasn't good. In the beginning, Eames says, fax us these names. Then Gorn's pager goes off, and then he's you know, doing a, a presentation with a, an overhead projector. I mean, Lonnie, it really kind of feels maybe dated. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely feels dated. And even for at the time for the overhead projector scene, you know, which sometimes they would do on like X-Files and everything, even this feels, I mean, it feels gritty and real. Like it feels like when I'm actually sitting in one of those terrible rooms with the overhead projector, like they didn't make anything in this shot look at all appealing. (laughs) Like there was nothing about this place that felt, you know, warm and cozy the way that a a nice, you know, New York City uh, cop you know, conference room should be, right? <laughs> didn't didn't Gorham in this episode seem like too large for every room he was in? Now, he always does that thing where he sort of like bends over when he's looking at things. But the way this episode was shot and that room, too, it's like always shot sort of like up. So you can see like the crappy ceiling tiles, you know, <laughs> like with the suspended ceiling. <laughs> in Trudy's apartment, there was a suspended yes. ceiling, which really stuck out to me, by the way. With the little, with the little um, fire sprinkler coming out That's in the right. middle of it, right? Oh, I'm so little... glad that you yeah. saw that, too. That no, was distracting. I did. I did. Rebecca, no, I totally get you. I totally get where you're at. <laughs> it is. It's a little bit distracting. It was shot as though we were watching this from the perspective of like a little kid. You know, we're just kind of looking up at all. All these people so yeah no it was it was a little bit crazy and Gordon, i don't know because again like like i said i have confessed i haven't watched a lot of this is that not how it's always shot is it not always shot to make him seem like really hulking and super large or well sometimes yeah. but i don't know in this episode in particular he really seemed to be outsized like he, he was definitely like yeah. a little it was like watching um you know like in the lord of the rings movies right. like a regular sized person going <laughs> in one of those hobbit holes <laughs> right, and, right. and every other scene the hobbits look like regular people and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're like oh that's right i forgot they're supposed to be small but that's kind of how it's Right. He yeah. was hunched over like that, though, even when they were outside. It's like the sky isn't high enough for him. <laughs> I think they used the same lens as when they were shooting Jesse L. Martin's hand. Very possibly. <laughs> this was about the time, I think, that, that Lord of the Rings was happening. So maybe somebody was, you know, having some fun, doing some experimenting with the directing. How do, how do we make Green's hands look really oh, exactly. big? <laughs> I'm going a tour on this episode here. <laughs> you know, Gorn does his his overhead, and the commanders are just more concerned about the public panic. And then, like, they start grilling deacons. And he's We're getting like, a thousand phone calls per hour. Nobody knows how much of this poison there is out there. You should have conducted a two-track investigation. My point, sir, is however many tracks we have, we will catch this hump. That's a promise. We will get this hump. Yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit of a dated piece of dialogue. <laughs> but you don't think they they call them humps anymore? What? No, but you know what? You know what else like really feels dated to me, and maybe this is still the case. The three like, button suit. Well, that, but also also <laughs> like cops like not wanting the public to know that someone is like poisoning their pain medication. Maybe they still do that, but it feels like of an era like we don't want to cause a panic. It feels like these days we we do want to cause a panic like all the time. Like yeah, the more panics, the better. I get fourteen <laughs> panics in an hour on Facebook. <laughs> One person got sick at Chipotle. Exactly. Let's shut them all down. <laughs> And then there's this uh, this great idea that Goran comes up with while D.A. Carter is walking to the elevator. That's how long it takes for it to come to his okay, brain. Okay, pause. Yeah. Can we just talk for a second about Goran's run to the elevator? 
<laughs> Not so graceful. I just want to say. It reminds me of D'Onofrio in Full Metal Jacket I trying to hit never, that obstacle. ever, seriously, in my real life, use the incredibly sexist expression, runs like a girl. Uh-huh, but you're about to. But I really want to. <laughs> I appreciate your restraint, Rebecca. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank oh. you very much. D'Onofrio has tweeted back to me a couple of times, so I feel like I can't actually say that. And I do feel like it's a super sexist expression that no one should ever say. Except maybe in this one Except, <laughs> Except when it's obviously appropriate, right? <laughs> Good thing you didn't also have to throw a ball. He didn't run like a coordinated girl. Let's put it that way. Right. Because yes. I know a lot of girls who actually run very nicely. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he runs like me is what he runs. <laughs> he runs like this girl. Exactly. He runs like me. Yes, yes. But, you know, I mean, that's okay. Like, I like that he's got this kind of like awkwardness that that permeates even his physical being like there is just this weird awkwardness around Goran that I find really kind of appealing in a way of somebody who can like sympathize with being you know physically awkward <laughs> like <laughs> so I, I kind of like that they have that in his in his personality and I will even go so far as to say maybe he ran that way like deliberately maybe he did that that's part of his characterization I think he's like a method guy isn't he He's totally a method guy. Yeah. And if you follow him on Twitter, you will learn all about it. Um, <laughs> the other thing that was like a little bit disturbing to me about this scene, and it sort of like punctuates all of like the wrongful conviction narratives that we are now listening to and, and watching on TV mm-hmm. and in podcasts, is the um, the cop's ability to go to the DA, ask for an indictment, and when the DA says no, we don't have anything, the cop just saying, "Just trust me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes. All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sure, no problem. I'll get that in We'll send that old lady to Rikers. No right. problem. Nothing. Let's give this woman recently what could out of the possibly hospital. go wrong. Right. She's not going <laughs> to yeah. have a heart attack being wrongfully accused. She can't run. She's got a new knee. The city. Right. Oh my god, no, that is the worst plan. Like out of all the bad plans I have seen executed on television, this idea that we are going to take this old woman recently out of the hospital, infirm, dealing with the fact that her daughter may be, you know, a serial killer, <laughs> and put her under the most possible pressure and stress that you can possibly put on a human being, on the off chance that it is gonna nudge this daughter into confessing, rather than say I don't know, investigating the daughter. (laughs) Right. No, on the off chance that it's going to get Cutie Bear, the clothing franchise company, to pull their franchise agreement with the daughter. he didn't know at the time. Or no, he did. I guess he did when he he got the plan in. He was trying to figure out how can we get this morals cause to be invoked. Right. And all of a sudden, six light bulbs go off in his head and he runs to the elevator. And then he's the one who go tells Cutie Bear about the morals clause thing. That's right, yeah. He's like, just just so you know. That was very strange. It It was not ethical. It seems like more work than actually you know, investigating yes. the suspect. It's more work than just sitting outside of her apartment and waiting for her to poison more people. Yes oh, or no? Right. <laughs> well, she doesn't need to poison anybody else. She got Lenny, her That's husband. True. Yeah. That's true. And can we please talk about her like reporting the murder to the police and on that same phone call saying, if I were to sue, how long would it take me to get the money? Exactly. And I like how fast, of course, all of that is moving through. Like, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah, my Fastest understanding is the legal ever. system moves quite a lot slower than that. It would be a long time before she ever saw any of that money. But, you That's know, right. we can't have a bunch of naked kids running around New York. we got to get these franchises up. She's getting a check in less amount of time from a major corporation than it takes for her to unpack a single box of children's so- clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so they finally get their suspect, they're going to arrest Trudy, and now she's like, 
literally hanging on for dear life <laughs> to the counter. Like, no, you can't take this away from me. Trudy Pomeranski, you're under arrest. No, please turn around. No, no, no. I don't want to hurt you. No, 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 I don't want to go. Please, please, please. Come on, this man. In my favorite, like, throwaway arrest scene of all time, Gorn and Eames say, you're under arrest. They have her for two seconds, and then literally two other trench-coated detectives walk into the building, and they just pass her to the two other guys. Like, this is your problem now, fellas. Steven, here's the deal. Okay, we're going to go in first. (laughs) (laughs) And once you see... Her struggle, I want you to, that's when you come in, all right? This is my big moment. We need to have our two lines of dialogue after the arrest, right. and we can't do it if she's literally in handcuffs. Which is so different us. from the way they arrest Colleen, which is like, you're under arrest. Can I go get some clothes? Yeah, go ahead. Can go I go with, use the phone? Yeah, go walk away to get the handgun you have stashed. <laughs> And start and start dumping all of your cocaine down the. I uh, loved that down the toilet like in Goodfellas. They put her under arrest, and she said, uh, "You know, who can you call to take care of your father?" She goes, "I guess I'll call my sister," and they just let her leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not actually guilty of killing people, although she is guilty of like almost killing people so right. that she can flirt with the security guard. Like, granted, he the was scene, cute. But the scene still. you didn't see is like them going into the kitchen and seeing the window open and the breeze blowing the curtains. It's like, where did she go? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the This episode is based on the real-life case of Stella Nickel. The Seattle-area woman had two hobbies, hard drinking and taking care of her fish aquarium. In June 1986, Bruce Nickel came home with a headache and took four Excedrin capsules, then suddenly collapsed. Doctors attributed his death to emphysema. Days later, Susan Snow died after taking two Excedrin. During the autopsy, the medical examiner detected the smell of almonds. Her capsules had been laced with cyanide. Panic set in as tampered bottles were discovered at stores in surrounding towns. Stella contacted police saying her husband had taken Excedrin before his death, and they found cyanide in her bottle too. She filed a wrongful death suit against the manufacturer. Then, she gave the police a second bottle of laced Excedrin she bought at a completely different store. Detectives thought the odds she purchased two tame bottles were slim. The crime lab found mingled with the cyanide was an algicide used in home aquariums. Later, Her adult daughter told police Stella had talked about killing Bruce for the insurance money. Stella said her husband became boring after he quit drinking. (laughs) Stella Nickel was sentenced to 90 years in prison. He became boring after drinking. All right, that's my favorite detail of all time of any true crime story I've ever heard. Yeah, don't get sober because bitch will kill you. (laughs) I need a headache. I got a headache. Here, take one of these. (laughs) <laughs> so tell us the different elements of the real nickel story what do we get here Lonnie that went into the this uh fictionalized version well I think her you know poisoning a bunch of people to make it look like her husband was just one of a number of victims I love the the lawsuit you know the <laughs> suing the people that's just like adding insult to injury that is bold you know for a murderer to be like okay I'm gonna set you up for this you know terrible thing that's happened to all these people and then I'm gonna sue your ass you know 
I like some of the small details. Like, I was interesting. I actually thought, and I didn't know that this was the case it was based on. This is the one thing that, for some transparency, like, I try to, like, not talk to you about, like, what's the real crime, although sometimes it's really super obvious. Mm -hmm. I thought this was about the Tylenol poisonings. I didn't realize it was about the Excedrin case, which explains why the pain medication on the show was called Nisedrol, (laughs) which is a super weird fake name for a drug, but sounds a lot like Excedrin. So that's interesting. I like the parallel with the chemicals, the fish aquarium and the photography kind of situation. Like, it's very specific, like industry specific. But I just want to do like a little callback because yeah. on my notes, when I was looking at what was written on uh, Captain Deacon's whiteboard, one yeah. of the things written there was 555-0100 Nichols. Ah, oh, they gave a little ah. wink. They did do a little wink so he could That's have just solved the crime just by looking at his freaking whiteboard. He's like, oh. He's like the worst detective. He's, <laughs> he's got his staff like whistling Dixie. And like, I don't know who these leaks are. Gosh, I mean, you could just stare at this whiteboard long enough to figure out who did this. So basically the deal is if I kill you, no offense, Kevin, I'm just going to yeah, throw it out there. It's easy to do. Go ahead. If I kill you, rather than just lie and just say you died in some other way, the best course of action for me to take is to kill a whole bunch of other people. Well, here's the thing that is true in in both cases that the wife did such a good job murdering her husband, she was never able to get to the second part of her plan, which was the lawsuit, which is why she had to resort to killing other people. Got it, because because they never found the cyanide the first time. Yeah, that's why they had to go back and she had to get the body exhumed, because she thought that someone would, you know, the medical examiner would pick it up at the first death. (laughs) She didn't didn't have Goran right? just to smell them out. Exactly. So when you have a wife going, no, that is not a natural death, look harder, you know, then you know that you've got an issue going there. And I'm just wondering if someday I am actually going to be called in to testify based on the conversations we've been having here tonight. I, it's yeah. a, could happen. <laughs> could happen. Could happen. <laughs> she actually had. They both had committed the perfect crime, except for the fact that they didn't get the kind of money they thought they could have. Did she want attention like Trudy did too? Because Trudy really also seemed to be sort of like a little bit of an attention hog. Was that part of it too? I don't know. She obviously wanted to go out partying more. <laughs> <laughs> I need a husband who drinks. Listen, You're boring. To me. <laughs> You're so boring. You're so boring. Now that you've started exercising, I know. you become Taking so care of yourself. boring. <laughs> You're going to live forever. I hate you. It's too long. <laughs> That's why I drink. So I don't live with you as long as I yeah. might otherwise. <laughs> Well, I can see why he said, maybe you want to take a couple of these capsules. <laughs> well, you know what's really interesting is I, I don't know when the script was written or when this was shot, but this aired November 1st, 2001. Right. So six weeks after 9-11. Right. But they added the detail in this episode about you know, mailing the chemical to the newspaper, which is like what was happening with anthrax yeah. at the same time. So again, I, I don't know which is art imitating life, but I have to imagine that if you're sitting at home watching that, that is a detail that rings very true. Yeah, I mean, given the, the freak out that was going on right around this time. And this aired in like November of 2001. So I, if it was shot after the 9-11, I don't think it could have been shot very much after. You know, no, it, so that would have been really super fresh to put in there at that point. Everybody was wearing um, like fall clothes, mm-hmm. so it just made me feel this. This doesn't look like August. Yeah, yeah. This no. looks like September, October. I think it was shot before. Mm-hmm. This show was planned. This wasn't like a spontaneous thing. Like, hey, let's no. spin off a show. 
No, you're right. I, I mean, I think this was obviously in the queue, but by the time they get around to doing it, I just think that's one detail that was. But they know it's so going to air in the fall. Specific, it is. Yeah, but they they know it's going to air in the fall. They they dress actors based on when they know the show is going to yeah. air, not when they're shooting the show. That's why you see Mariska walking around in a down coat all the time with like a little bit of sweat on her forehead. Although occasionally, though, by the way, you can tell it is. Excuse my language, like fucking cold when they shoot those SVU episodes. <laughs> <laughs> when you see like the crisp white smoke coming out of their yes. mouth when they're talking, and when it's they're supposed wearing... to be like the middle of you know April or whatever. And they're yeah. wearing like clothes that look even even like a little bit too cozy for New Yorkers yes. to be wearing, <laughs> <laughs> like on TV. Like yeah, you know, like they are putting those actors through the paces. Oh, yeah. And they're they're all like Jesse L. Martin holding those little Greek cups of coffee <laughs> to stay warm. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for us. I want to thank our guest, Lonnie Diane Rich. Lonnie, where can our listeners follow you? Oh, they can follow me on Twitter at, at Lonnie Diane Rich and follow StoryWonk at StoryWonk. You will find us there all the time. We've got a ton of great podcasts you can listen to. Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? They can follow me on Twitter at Reb Lavoie, also at Reb Lavoie on Instagram, or they can follow us on Crime Writers On at Crime Writers On. How about that for a plug? And that's very good. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.